electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, chasing the rally. One firm seeing the biggest inflows to stocks in more than six months, raising hopes for a year-end run for your money. We'll debate the next move for the markets with the Investment Committee. Joining me right here for the hour today, Stephen Weiss, Jason Snipe, Jenny Harrington, and Joe Terranova. I'll take you to the wall. We're just past 12 noon in the east. See what we're doing today on this Friday. Dow is good for 157, 33,701. Somewhat muted on the S&P and the NASDAQ. 381 is where we are on the 10-year note. Big question, six months. Jason Snipe, welcome, by the way. It's great to see you in the house. Six months, six weeks, excuse me, left in the year. Everybody wants to know the same question. Where are we going from here? Can we get a rally between now and the end of the year? Can we keep any kind of momentum that we have? What do you think? So for me, I think that, you know, if I'm trailing back to last week, you know, the CPI was down, you know. Uh, CPI was good. PPI was PPI good. PPI was good. Um, you, you also see, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of positive numbers from a macro perspective. So as I look to the rest of the year, you know, and the opportunities, um, earnings is now over. Right. So I, I think there could be some seasonality tailwinds, you know, also some positioning tailwinds that could play a role in, in markets moving through the rest of the year. There's also there's obviously headwinds as well. You know, as we look to what policy will be going forward, there'll probably be a 50 basis point hike in in December, maybe a 25 basis point in February. And then I think they pause, you know, so that's just my overall read in the market. But I do think there's some opportunity here in the near term. OK, so, Jenny, I referenced at the top of the show uh, the chase. That's what Bank of America is talking about today, their flow show. Biggest inflows to equities, some $23 billion in 35 weeks. Uh, you got a lot of money coming out of European equities looking for a home. They say they see a move into the year end, but they would fade greater than 4,100 on the S&P 500. They think you may get a hot November payroll number, which ends all the optimism. But what do you think about what they're talking about and what they're seeing? Money coming into the market with this big chase between now and the end of the year. Well, it's funny because it goes straight back to what we were debating last week, which is, could we have a rally? Yes. What does that mean and how high does it take us? And you had specifically said, what if we get to 4,100? Well, you know what? That's not really that exciting, is it? It's really incremental in terms Relative of Relative to return. where we were, I think people would think it's exciting. Where we were, but where we are today, All right, it's, good. it's Give not me a, saying much. Well, right? Give me 100 more points on the S&P. Sure, I'll take it. You know what? If we end the year here... I'll consider it a huge victory. If we end the year not down 26%, fan-freaking-tastic. And I think it's interesting because Jason put together this like basket of pros and cons. And I look at now to the end of the year as kind of a battle of positive sentiment versus the numbers. So the numbers are, and your Weiss will argue with me on this, but let's say 225 of earnings for next year, 
what multiple do you want to put on that? Mm -hmm. That says we have a super tight cap. That's going to be fighting with people simply feeling better because we are past the worst of Fed tightening. We're past the worst, hopefully, of Russia-Ukraine. We're over earnings, as you said. So there's just, you know, on an emotional side, you can get excited. On a math side, it's hard to get excited. If we end the year around here, 4,100, 3,800, I'll be thrilled. That's why, I mean, look, we, we talk about the market we, we have on this program as a tale of two time frames. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the six weeks between now and the end of the year, um, which many are trying to grow more positive about. And then there's the other side of that, which is where you lie, which says, you know, the earnings projections that Jenny lays out are still too high. The multiple based on what the earnings are actually going to be is still too high. Mm-hmm. Yep. The Fed's going to be aggressive, much more so than people think. That's your play. That's yeah. the playbook, right? Yeah, and, and there was one chink in the armor, so to speak, uh, in my playbook, which is that you saw CapEx expenditures at a ridiculously high level for the third quarter, whereas I had been believing that CEOs who were more in touch with what's going on with the economy than, frankly, we are, would have pulled back in their spending somewhat. But they're not. They're still investing. And that's because they have robust balance sheets. So they're spending their balance sheet. They're not spending earnings. Nonetheless, in some cases, it doesn't matter where it's coming from because it's still going into the economy. However, I'm sticking with, with my plan, which is basically first quarter earnings are going to be punk when they report. You'll start to see some of it from the fourth quarter, but then you'll see a major trail off because that's when all the tightening will take place. Impact. I thought we. I thought you pretty much. You know, we documented the last time you were on a number of moves that you had made, and um, I asked you how long you were going to stay in some of these trades, which you suggested would be until the next Fed meeting. Um, You sold Alphabet and you sold Morgan Stanley. You want to tell me why you did both? Yeah, I I made money in them. Google is is on watch, or Alphabet's on watch because of the section. 230 case. And um, they're the tip of the spear in the economy with advertising. So that was a pure momentum trade where people coming in. What I found disappointing was that the market didn't hold. uh, I didn't expect to be up another thousand points after PPI on Tuesday, but it really didn't hold those pre-market levels at all. It could sell down and NASDAQ's been down every day since. So that's not a great sign. I look at the market where it is right now as sort of imbalance on a risk reward. You can have 150 down through the end of the year. You can have 150 S&P points okay. up. However, I think the bias seasonally, as Jason points out, is to the upside. So that's why I'm staying in those positions. What about the Morgan Stanley position, though? It, it was also a trade. And I bought some XLF. Uh, I already owned um, you know, Goldman. And I had added to uh, B of A. I added to Goldman, actually, also. So... Um, so I thought I had enough exposure, and that was a pure momentum trade in the market. I mean, you got, you know, seasonality, like Weiss says, yes. positive. You have Fed speak, which you can deem negative. Um, which wins out? Because maybe part of what happened in the latter part of yesterday into today is the market coming to its senses that Bullard's got one vote left, right? Yep. He's a perennial tape bomber. Uh, he says things that put him as an outlier at times which have roiled the markets for a time, um, they're not going to 7%. I mean, that's the prevailing thought. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everybody's wrong. Um, but the conventional thought is they're not going to get close to a 7% terminal rate. Is that fair assessment of where we are today? Well, <clears throat> I think if you look at where the price of oil is right now at $78, does that tell you that they're going to need to go to 7%? I think without question, the answer to that is, is no. Right. Um, in addition to that, you, you asked... 
which one wins out? How do you define what's a win ultimately? Well, Can seasonality you? either takes the market higher or overly hawkish Fed speak overcomes that and takes it lower. It can't, it can't get over the fact that the Fed is going to continue to talk aggressively, jawbone, if you will, uh, and it won't be able to get over that, that hill. Okay, that's a fair point. Uh, but, but picking up on what Jenny said, I, I think when you look at 2022, if you come out of the year where you don't roll back over, so then exactly what you're saying, the seasonality takes hold and that's the win where it keeps us from declining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, then the market absolutely comes out of the year looking like it's in a much better scenario. But regardless of that, I don't think you could dismiss what is going on right now in the economy, in the housing market. And then if you look at we, we've lost we've lost this fixation on the Treasury curve. We're not talking anymore about a three month to, to a 10 month. We're not looking at the shape of that yield curve anymore. We've got a chart. If we could show that chart, okay, mm-hmm. you're right now at an inversion of 50 basis points. There's a huge 50 inversion. basis points. Yeah. Scott, that's going back to where we were in December of 2000. That's going back to where we were in March of 2007. That's not a good place to be. No, which is why it's you know, difficult as an investor at this moment, because even if you get a move, over the next six weeks that makes you feel better. And to your words, it looks like things are better. They're not really better. Well, because, the, right. you know, the, what happens next on the other side is earnings have to start but coming down even more. The rate hikes, which have that dr- dramatic lag effect, start to take more effect. That's why Bank of America, even thinking that, you know, OK, you, you can get a move between now and the end of the year, says the first half of next year is bonds. That's your play. Yep. The second Absolutely. half is stocks. But the first half is bonds. For the next six weeks, it may be stocks, but then the party's over. Well, maybe stocks, because you've got one thing, which is Powell. As I said uh, last week on the show, he's going to be a little like Moses, right? He went up that mountain, and he comes down, he sees everybody partying when it's a serious time. And so you've got some complacency that's really seeped into the market. You know, strategists, with the exception of BA, and... Um, you know, with the exception of Morgan Stanley, uh, Mike has been, you know, very clear on what his view is. But it seems like all of a sudden people are saying, you know what, everybody knows the Fed's going. Everybody knows earnings are going to come down. So I'm going to buy anyway. So my view is that Powell is going to be like Moses and he's going to say, hey, you keep with that partying, and I mean business, and he's going to be extremely hawkish in his comments because this is a Fed tool, right? The market, that's liquidity. Bonds are a Fed tool. What if, so Gold, what, come down, what so if Goldman's right? right? They say we're going to narrowly avoid a recession next year, so even with these, everything. Whether Goldman's right, B of A is right, you're right, I'm right, we're all right. Here's the thing. But this is the most, this right. is the most important right. Maybe, but what you Second have to do. Here's the thing. What you have to do as an investor <laughs> is look at what you're, you're actually <laughs> investing in. And so you know what you need to say? You need to say, maybe the market's going to be up 5% from here. Maybe it's going to be down 5%. What am I going to buy? I can still make money in this market. And then maybe you don't have, this is, we're no longer in a position where you buy because you think the market's going to expand or you sell because the market's going to come back. What you need to do is look at individual stocks and say, can this do well in spite of all else that's going on? Are the expectations for this company reasonable? And you can look, and I don't mean to jump ahead, but you can look at some of the things in our portfolio today, like raw stores or Foot Locker. Neither of those were great earnings reports, but the stocks are up significantly because there's a, there's a dichotomy between what was expected and what's actually coming. 
So there is money to be made. Yes, right? You don't have to just buy bonds in the first No, but I mean, the does. Goldman call, if, if we do, Jason, avoid a recession, um, earnings don't get hit as much. Right. The multiple doesn't have to come down as much. Right. The overall market is in an undeniably better position. Wouldn't you agree with that? No doubt about that. And I think for me, as, as I look at earnings, and, and I think earnings have obviously been revised down, they don't have to come down dramatically, but I think they will come down some. I mean, that's a, generally the last shoe to drop. So I think as it relates to recessionary talk, even if it's, if it's shallow and it's not as long, that is a benefit to the market. And I think that's why you could still be in equities. And I do like investment grade debt. I think there's opportunities there. If you look at the two year above 4%, there are, there are opportunities in debt. And I think you, you have to be well balanced in this, in this environment. In other words, Weiss, if I told you right now, Goldman, just for the sake of the conversation, Goldman's gonna be right. Okay, there's not gonna be a recession. The whole tenor of the market changes on that, does it not? It, it, it does, I believe, because people look from, at this point for a mild recession. But it's almost becoming a foregone conclusion because of what Joe but, pointed out. Yeah, but, it, but it's become such a foregone conclusion that I think it's being ignored, frankly. So you can say something, say something, and then the market stops paying attention. The market's yes, not ignoring it. I don't think the market's, think the market's ignoring, ignoring it. What, what's rallying within the market? Well, it's, uh, take it's a, a defensive rally. Take a look at what's, what's holding up the most. That's industrials. It's not, it's not tech. So okay. they went there because they thought it's a it was defensive safer. rally. But even if we avoid a recession... How much upside can we get? And that's where we get to if it's 4,100, 4,200. That is not so aggressively up that you can just jump in broadly to the market and let the rising tide flow all ships. 4,100 or whatever is irrelevant to this conversation. You're not going to know the answer to this question until sometime into next year. And you don't, don't, by definition, by definition, you don't know the definition. You don't know you're in a recession until you're coming out of it. No, but I mean, you know, look. No, but I I know. And we're sort of saying the same thing because it's it really sneaks up on you, right? Unless you have a, a major event like 2008 or 2000, it just sneaks up on you. But here's, so, the, th- okay, here's the math, though. Let's say we avoid the recession. That doesn't suddenly put you back to 250 of earnings and a 21 times multiple. You know, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, so if they're right... Those are free money multiples. You're not going those, back Exactly. There. So even if we avoid a recession, the upside remains limited. And if the upside remains limited... Then, then you need to look at individual companies. You can't just jump back in. I, I still think we're making a mistake of saying only bonds in the first half, only stocks in the second half. I think you need to be more. Well, nuanced. we're not making that mistake at all. You're I right. mean, I'm You're just not. reading a note of what <laughs> Go, uh, Bank of America suggests are going to be the better trades. It's not like don't put any money into equities at all in the first half. It's what is going to outperform Fair enough. in the first half versus Fair the second half. I mean, let's not be so literal on it. This will be the fifth time in 50 years, only the fifth time that you've had both the bond market, meaning treasury market, and equities down in the same year. Only the fifth time. So odds are one's going to outperform next year. I do think it'll be bonds. I've been buying six months. I've been buying two year. I still think those yields are phenomenal. You know what's not uh, underperforming? is the Joe T. Huh. Uh, Two-year anniversary, by the way, today. Thank you. Congratulations. Uh, since inception, uh, it's up 12.4%. S&P is up 11. The NASDAQ 100 is down 2. It's um, a quality momentum Correct. strategy. Correct. What's worked? Like, why has it beaten the S&P? So, first of all, and, I, and I'll accept the benchmark being the S&P, because I think I think for everyone, the benchmark is the S&P, but the combination of two factors, fundamentals, technicals, combined quality momentum, 
it's actually outperforming the single factor of quality and the single factor of momentum. So, Scott, what it has done, what I'm proud of, is that it evolved very quickly from being concentrated in the direction initially of technology, of communication services, of owning Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, all of them collectively the big. And it quickly recognized that, and in an actively way, it reduced its holdings. I first saw it in April of 2021. We were sellers of Netflix at 513. We were sellers of Salesforce at 230. It evolved into the fall in October. We were sellers of Nike at 167. In January of 22, the sell discipline again, we moved out of PayPal at 163. And then in the spring, we got out of Meta at $200. So that active management, the evolution of having a sell discipline and being able to combine those two factors, I'm proud of it. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to introduce this in a publicly traded strategy. I wanted people to see this is how I look at markets. This is how I invest. And I want it to be judged based on the performance and where we are today. I'm very comfortable with it. And certainly you, looking for the you future. You can see the, you know, the transformation of the yeah. weightings, if you want to use that word, uh, from inception to today to reflect your view on what you think is going to work versus what isn't. At inception, technology was more than 33%, again, two years ago. Uh, today, it's 20 Healthcare, um, you've decreased. Correct. Uh, which is interesting because healthcare is done quite well. Um, discretionary was 9.4. I don't know what it is here because it's not on my list. 7.25 now. Uh, industrials, 9. Industrials now, 12. So you've increased that. Big one, communication services. We were 6.35. We're down to 2.18. So in the case of healthcare, we're beginning to recognize that momentum at a certain point, Steve mentioned this before, momentum begins to wane. And you have to realize that, yes, you want to be in healthcare right now. Everyone gets that. But also you have to understand that it's becoming a little bit of a crowded sector. Everyone's there. And when it becomes a crowded sector, what do you do? At that point, you begin to lose the buyers. Momentum begins to wane. And that's a leading signal to kind of step to the sidelines. That's helped us in the past. You own, you own the Joe T. I do. I Presumably for more reasons than Joe's a, a buddy. I mean, it's the strategy's yeah, worked. Money's money, you know, and <laughs> I'm happy to have dinner with him, but if he's going to cost me money. I mean, if know, it was a dog, you yeah. wouldn't be in it. No, no, uh, no. But why are you in it? I was in it for the reasons that he made, but just to summarize why I'm in it is because I know he does his work, and I know what type of names he gravity, gravitates to. I may not want to take single name exposure in that, like Palo Alto, for example. So it gives me exposure to the names that I wouldn't necessarily be involved in. I'm also, while I do look at technicals, I don't invest off technicals. I'm purely bottoms up. Um, so he does. So that gives me exposure to that as well. But I wouldn't do it alone without somebody looking at the fundamentals. So they've got to be married. So that's why I do it. So it gives me great diversity in my portfolio. And it also gives me some juice in my portfolio that I may not have with other names. You just rebalanced within the last, what was it, week or so? Two yes, weeks? Yes, October 28th. Correct. Okay. And you'll do it again at the, uh, the beginning of the year, I guess, right at the end of the last quarter. Quarterly balance and, and what, what we try to do is we try to ensure 
that we get the latest earnings report. So we rebalance at the end of October, the end of January, the end of April, the end of July. We get the benefit of understanding what some of those mega cap technology earnings are going to look like. Um, it's actively managed. That's that's obvious. And it is equal weighted. And, and I don't you know, that's that's a strategy that I think is going to be important going forward. All right. So stay with us. We're going to trade some of the day's big earnings movers today. Plus, one top investor joins us with his bull case for biotech uh, in the year ahead. Halftime's back right after this. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Let's talk some earnings movers now. Applied Materials. Jenny, we go to you. Our earnings did beat. Uh, yeah. You sold the stock, I don't know, a week ago? Yep. Something like that? Yep. What's your read here of the, of the quarter? Price targets uh, raised by a number of firms today as high as I see uh, to 120 at Needham, as you all can see on your list here. Mm. So actually, the surprising thing, and the stock isn't up too much, thank goodness, because I've been so upset. Um, but the surprising thing is it's really in line with what our thesis was, which is, I think earnings are probably peaking. And again, if you recall last week, what I said was, I think I left the most important part out. We originally bought this at $16 a share in 2013. So we've trimmed it along the way at different points. We rode it up to 160. It came back to 100. And at 100, we said, look, earnings right now are probably at a peak. And it's trading at 14 times. And that, you know, that puts it at $100. Sorry, 14 times is the historic multiple. If you don't have earnings growth from here, and you can't make a good case for, for multiple expansion, then it's fully valued. And so we'll probably buy this back one day, but it might be two or three years away. It was interesting seeing the analysts upgrades and downgrades. Some of them had $120 price targets. One had an $80 price yeah, $80, target. Yeah. yeah, and that was the exact math that we'd worked through. I mm -hmm. said, you know, worst case, we might leave 20% on the table. But there's also a really good chance that we buy it back down 20%. You referenced, well, I'm glad the stock's not up a lot. I would be upset. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it's up 40% over the last month. So you obviously captured a fair amount of that before you sold. And that was super, that was kind of like, you know, are we looking the gift horse in the mouth? Because we know earnings are not going higher from here, and the stock has responded. Um, the other one's Footlocker. The other one, Footlocker, beat raise. Uh, let's take a look at the stock. You, you own that, too. Uh, that's a nice move today. Right. And this gets back a little bit to what I was saying before. Now, we bought Foot Locker back in February after they announced horrible earnings. Um, and they announced that Nike was going to back off from what, you, what they were going to supply them with. 
but they said at the same time, we're going to buy back pretty much half our shares and we're jacking the dividend up. And so at that point, we looked at the stock and we said, oh my goodness, so much bad news is in there, in here, it kind of can't get worse. So regardless of what the market does, we think that this is a company that has upside potential from here. So we listened to this earnings call and it's the same kind of thing, like nothing's wonderful, it's just much better than expectations. And expectations for this, for Ross Doris, for um, Kohl's, for American Eagle, like expectations just got so incredibly horrible that it's kind of easy to beat. Um, so that that's where we are. N- nothing... Nothing transformative right. at Foot Locker. Palo Alto. Um, let's take a look at that. Jason Snipe, that's yours. Jenny, too, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. let, let's hear from you on this. Uh, a very nice move today. Absolutely. So, I mean, with Palo Alto, I mean, Palo, still expensive stock, trading at 50 times forward. Uh, but billings were up 27%. It's trading very well, you know, relative to the market, relative to the NASDAQ. You know, it's only down 8%. Um, cloud adoption is strong, and just secular, secular tailwinds in the cybersecurity space, I think, is effervescent in this stock. So I continue to like it. I think it will do well going forward, and, you know, it's something Jason, I will continue can, to own. Can, can, I own. I own CrowdStrike. I've owned Palo Alto in the yep. past. I've owned Fortinet. And I keep hearing this argument that, well, okay, we understand that security spending is going to stay resilient, even if there is an economic contraction. But you know what? Everyone sees that. And everyone's already there. Is that a reason for us to sell out? I don't think so at all. I think the enterprise spend is going to remain strong. You know, again, just the, just thematically in the secular trends within cybersecurity, I think a lot of these names can continue to do well. And especially for a name, as we always talk about long duration assets, Joe, it's trading at 50 times, but it's still responded well in this environment. So these are the types of names that we need to look at that operate and continue to do well. What about Ross stores? Uh, upbeat guidance, right? Retail is really in the crosshairs right now, um, especially apparel ones. This one is obviously bucking a, uh, a tough trend. What do you think here? Again, like the, for- the forward outlook on this is not super compelling, but the expectation, there's that di- divergence between the share price and what's actually happening at the company. And at some point, these share prices of the retailers just presumed that the, that the consumer was going to stop spending. And so then when they're not, the share price responds favorably. This is something that um, we might, we're not there yet, but we might consider using it as a source of funds if, if the share price continues to respond fit so favorably because the outlook isn't amazing. It's just amazing in this moment relative to what was expected. I respectfully disagree. I think, okay. off, I think off price right now in the retail environment, Dollar General, TJX, Ross Store, these are the ex- exact names that I think you want to look at right now. But how long for? And that's, that's kind of my point. Is I think you're totally right on right now. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm saying we're not selling it today. And that's why I'm saying, hey, it's up 10%. I think you're right on right now, but how about in six months? You know, and how long and how long does is, that share is, price run is, for? Is the Fed gonna just continue marching along, raising rates no matter what's going on? Are no. we gonna right I mean but they yeah, take advantage of the environment point, because they get as, more merchandise. Right. Is they're buying what, what Brian Cornell double ordered. I mean he mm-hmm. double ordered more than taking Scott out for a free meal. I mean, it's just huge. So there's so much inventory coming around. It's going to go to all these off prices. Okay, but then you need to look at the valuation. And the valuation isn't really that cheap. So at what point does the valuation get up? And so at 23 times earnings, right, maybe you're like, all right. The valuation is absolutely high. But just go back to 2008. Think about all the big box retailers, Walmart, and all of these names. They benefited. They benefited 
from the actual environment. They benefited from the economic contraction. And that's why we were here waiting for this kind of move. And I think there probably is more upside, but at some point it gets incorporated into the share price. And I think, just can I make one more big Real comment quick. on this? Yeah, please, I quick. think one of the most interesting things talking about Ross, Walmart, Target, what you're seeing right now is basically quality of management and their abilities to actually work through these, these inventory gluts. You're really seeing the management teams differentiated right here and now this quarter, and that's fun to watch. Okay, biotech bouncing 8% in the last month. Coming up, we're joined by investor Rod Wong next with his bullish outlook on that sector for 23. Plus, we'll get his new stock picks as well. We're back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, Elizabeth Holmes is arriving at that federal courthouse in San Jose. Our Scott Cohn is there. We're going to listen in here, see if we can't get any questions uh, to her as she uh, walks in for her sentencing. It, it really is, guys, a day of uh, reckoning for Elizabeth Holmes and a day of reckoning to some degree for Silicon Valley uh, as we watch her make this walk to the courthouse. She founded Theranos when she was 19 years old, dropping out of Stanford. Kept the company relatively quiet for about 10 years, then ran headlong into the Silicon Valley funding machine. And that's where prosecutors said things went wrong. The technology didn't work. And they say she lied about it to investors and lied about it to patients. Ms. Holmes, what, what message do you hope the judge will send today? Is there anything that you want to say to the uh, investors and the patients who have such faith in you? You plan to make any statements to the judge? Good luck, Elizabeth. What did it mean to you, have, to you to have all of those letters that were filed with your sentencing? You ready for this? I can be a pen pal. So as has been the case, Elizabeth Holmes is uh, not making any comments outside the court. That's been the case, was the case throughout her 15-week trial. Good luck, And apparently will be the case today. Judge Edward Davila will pronounce the sentence. She faces up to 20 years on each of the four counts that she was convicted of. The federal probation department has recommended nine years. The government wants 15 years. Holmes' defense team has asked for 18 months max. Ideally, they say, in home confinement. Holmes today accompanied by her, her parents and her partner, Billy Evans. All of whom wrote impassioned letters to the court asking for leniency. All right, so we'll, we'll take it back here. That was Scott Cohn, obviously, reporting outside the courthouse. We have about 90 minutes to go now. 
before Elizabeth Holmes uh, learns her fate from uh, from the the jury or the judge. Um, again, four counts, four felony counts that she was convicted on on January 3rd faces up to 20 years on each count. But as you heard Scott say, the government is arguing for 15 years. And we'll hear from Scott uh, certainly throughout the remainder of the afternoon once, in fact, we, uh, we learn of the, of the sentencing in uh, about 90 minutes' time. Let's uh, pivot to talk about the biotech sector. Uh, it's up about 9% in a month, still down 12% this year. Joining us now is Dr. Rod Wong, RTW Investments Managing Partner. He is the CIO. Uh, it's a tricky segue to make uh, off that breaking news, uh, Rod. So I appreciate your patience. But let's let's talk about um, this space, which you make your living investing in. Um, how do you think the sector looks coming into uh, the new year? Yeah, good to see you, Scott. Um, you know, look, we're cautiously optimistic, I would say, in the short term. You know, I think short term, it's mainly a story of of the macro headwinds that you're just talking about, you know, like interest rates that they decline, that's good for the space. Uh, and then if we do enter a recession um, next year, we'll see more of a rotation back into healthcare. That's the short-term thing. I think, look, medium-term, long-term, the important thing is that innovation is strong. Um, small companies are still cheap. Uh, there's a lot of innovation going on. We like areas like cell therapy, RNA, immunology, and cancer. I'm looking at some of the, the stock ideas that we visited with you last time. You, since you mentioned RNA, I mean, that's that's literally the the ticker symbol for one of your picks, Avidity. I mean, it's had a really rough go here. It's down near 50 percent um, year to date. Um, can you tell us what the issue you think is there, if you're still invested in it, if you would stay with it, if you're one of our viewers who might have followed you in based on the recommendation? No, you bet. Um, so, Avidity, I think investors are basically nervous ahead of their proof of concept data in patients that's due just around the corner, right? So, the reason we've liked the name is they're one of the leaders in um, the RNA space that's looking to try to deliver RNA medicines into the muscle. And there's a list of diseases that we talked a little bit about last time um, that are terrible diseases, no available therapy, right? And so, we're still optimistic that they're going to be able to get the RNA into the muscle and that you're going to be able to make an impact on, on some of these diseases. I'm looking at some of your new stock ideas. Uh, MRTX is one, Marathi. Uh, can you talk about why you like that? And give us, can you give us any indication on when you uh, actually in, invested in that company? Uh, you bet. So Marathi, we've been invested for a while now. So the past couple of years, um, where, where it stands today is that they have a drug awaiting approval for refractory lung cancer. It targets a very specific mutation called KRAS. Um, you know, it's actually a good example of, of the type of drug that might not have been developed, right, if the IRA was around back when this, this drug was discovered. Um, so, but right now, you know, assuming there's no hiccups to approval, which should be very soon, I think investors' primary focus is they're watching for data to see if it can combine better with drugs that are used frontline for lung cancer. And if it does, that could help it leap its primary, uh, leapfrog its primary competitor, which is Amgen. Uh, so that data hopefully is before the end of the year. How about Adeset? Uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. A-C-E-T, the ticker? That's exactly right. Uh, this is also a cancer company. It's totally different in the sense that it is a cell therapy company. Um, so they're working on second generation cell therapy, which is basically trying to make cell therapies off the shelf instead of patient-specific products, right? So these earlier cell therapies, they've had super high cure rates in certain cancer types like lymphoma, um, but they've been really hard to access, even with multiple of them on the market now, 
because of the logistics and the long wait time, you have to um, waiting for the product to be made. So they have a data update at a big uh, cancer conference in a couple of weeks in New Orleans called ASH. And hopefully those data continue to look good. Yeah, I'm looking at uh, the chart right now. So about $741 million is the market cap just to uh, keep people up to date on just how big or, in fact, small some of these companies are and the kind of risks, you know, that are involved in investing in, in biotech, you know, almost regardless of the stage they're at. I've got Steve Weiss uh, here with me. You know, invest a, a fair amount in this space. Weiss, got a question? Yeah, yeah. Rod's actually one of my biggest mistakes because I didn't invest with him when we sat down about five years ago. He's had an unbelievable performance across some great performance from other hedge funds. He's been really on top. Yeah, my, my question is on uh, Moderna. Your views on mRNA, they've got a lot, of, a lot in the pipeline. Merck saw some data on the inv- individualized cancer vaccines and uh, put up 250. So I'm taking a positive read out of that. What's your view on the stock? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. Um, you know, both Moderna and BioNTech, the other major mRNA player, obviously they were at the perfect time where the technology was matured and it was perfect for COVID, right? And now the challenge with COVID is it's obviously from a business perspective, a declining revenue situation. So the big questions that I think investors are looking for answers to, which honestly nobody knows yet, is where do revenues settle out for COVID? And then are you gonna see some of these other applications work? You know, my personal opinion is that when you look at the science, um, it could absolutely work for other vaccines, but some of the other applications that um, the company was really built around when they first went public, that's still pretty early and, uh, and there's a fair amount of risk there. Joe Terranova has a question for you. Hey Rod, great to see you. Uh, CRISPR therapeutics and the technology that they're introducing to the market, are you a believer in it and what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, absolutely. I think CRISPR, um, the technology works. You've seen patient data last year that shows that you can turn off genes or edit the human genome and it looks safe, um, at least in early trials, right? Mm -hmm. I think the big question for CRISPR is that, you know, to make large numbers of patients comfortable with the idea of having their genome edited, you're going to have to find the right diseases, you know, the right applications where there's high unmet need. Right. And some of the companies have um, their business plans are not focused on those kinds of situations. Um, so overall, we're, we're kind of more cautious on the space. You know, I, I'm thinking about this literally as you're you're answering the question and, and the fact that CRISPR came up. And I'm wondering if you think there's going to be more scrutiny on quote unquote innovation um, by virtue of what we've seen in the market over the last year. I'm thinking of some of the, you know, the Kathy Wood type names, for example, and the just tremendous correction that we've seen in some of those, even though the longer term prospects for them may be great. How do you assess that as to whether the market is going to be more critical of these what you might want to call leap of faith names? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, look, when when you started talking about kind of the recovery that we've seen in the space, the primary benefit has been the medium to larger size companies, right? So I think last time we had talked about how small caps, you know, a third of the ones under sub, uh, under $10 billion were trading below cash. And that number has actually ticked up a little bit. So the IPO market for emerging companies is still basically closed. Um, raising money is really, really hard for these you know, the next generation of, of, um, of stories. And that's, that's a major challenge, right? So these companies are raising money every year. Um, and we need that to get better to be able to continue to support kind of emerging science. 
I look forward to having you back. Rod, thank you. Been a while, and it's good to welcome you back to the Halftime Report. We'll see you soon. That's Rod Wong joining us once again today. Great to see you. All right. Oil sliding to its lowest level. Joe said it's in September. Energy on track for its first negative week in five. We'll find out how the committee is viewing all that and what the technicals are saying about a bottom. We're right back. Welcome back. Let's talk crude oil. Lowest level now since late September. Energy sector is on track now for its worst negative week uh, in five. So, Weiss, you sold EQT, uh, which you've been in for a while. Why? Yeah, because everybody said, hey, it's going to be a cold, dark winter in Europe and gas prices are going to go through the roof and then they seem to pause. So I'll come back to it next year. It's extraordinarily cheap. And they just because of the nature of their business, their particular business, it looks expensive this year. When you get to next year, looking at mid-signal digit multiples, but there's just too much momentum calling for what everybody thought, which was a gas shortage in Europe. And by the way, they overstored in Europe, so that so the gas shortage may or may not be there. So so that's why I sold, and and I also had bought Chevron, so it was a little bit of a switch. I felt more comfortable in Chevron. Uh, it'll go down, but. I'm holding up because when China does reopen, I think you see energy prices go up again. Mark Newton, the technician over at Fundstrat, works with Tom Lee, says crew's going to bottom likely by next week and, and turn higher. Um, Jason Snipe, you got Chevron speaking of. Uh, also the XLE. Yeah, I mean, the XLE is up 70% year to date. Mm-hmm. I mean, so these, these, these names have run dramatically uh, throughout the year. So they're due for some form of a pause. You know, if I look at the SBR as an example, you know, it's its lowest level since 1985. You know, so the supply demand, is, as, as Weiss just mentioned, the supply demand and dynamics still exist, right? So I, I still think there's runway, but, you know, in, in the short run, I could see an easy pullback, but these names are profitable at $60 a barrel, so Jen, that doesn't concern me. Jenny, you have the most exposure of anybody on the desk um, today in terms of energy, uh, besides Chevron, uh, with, with the group. Devon, Energy Transfer, Enterprise Products, Kinder Morgan, Magellan, One Oak, Pioneer, William, Shell, Total, Clearway. It's a lot. So this is the perfect highlight of different time frames. You and I, Steve and I, have absolutely different time frames. You and I, Scott, have had this same conversation three times. We had it in the beginning of August. We had it in the beginning of October when oil prices had come back down a little bit, when the XLE had traded off a little bit. And here's what I said then, and here's what I'll say now. I am in this for the long haul. And as long as oil prices stay above 60, these companies will continue to mint cash. So rather than realizing enormous capital gains, rather than cutting off my nose to spite my face and selling them and not getting to collect the dividend income, I just wait these cycles out. I wait these turns out because I think they're short. And you've got things like Devon trading at seven times earnings, Chevron trading at 10 times earnings. There is so much runway to go here. Don't overthink these little cycles. You know, just stick with them. Collect your dividends. Know that in the long run, they're going to make Is this your largest sector waiting? Uh, No, actually. Not even close. What is? Uh, Probably real estate right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Joe, EOG, EQT, uh, which Weiss just bailed on, Pioneer, Valero. You're selling EQT because I, I, first of all, I've traded EQT the last two years. Awful. I have a stop in at 39, Scott. I will get stopped out. I wish you would have sold it for me. I've done a terrible job there. Yes, I have the energy exposure. Jason's point is a really strong one. Energy equities up 63% year to date. Spot price of oil up 5%. This quarter, energy equities up 26%. Spot price of oil unchanged. Why? Because we're looking at earnings. Right. We're looking at the growth in earnings. So, okay, $60 for oil. These companies can do well. Yes, they can. I still think you have to maintain the energy exposure. What's going on right now 
in the oil futures market is directly related to the surge in COVID cases in China and the Federal Reserve's policy. On the other side of that is going to be a response from OPEC. OPEC if they continue to see that, they will yeah. cut. So I'm going to maintain the energy. And, and that's the other thing about it. I mean, OPEC's much more together as a group. But I wouldn't disagree with something that, not surprisingly, Jenny said, and, and also Jason, <laughs> which is that I always hear that if oil trades to 60, they're still profitable. Well, any company you own virtually, if the recession hits, they're going to be profitable if they're good companies. That's no reason to invest. You know, because they'll still no, make some money. But and by the way, in terms of long-term view and these mini up and down cycles, it took you 10 years until the pandemic. <laughs> your face, your facial expression in energy. It was flat for 10 years. But periods. you had to be in it early. And this is when well, you I'm not waiting 10 years to make uh, money, Jenny. But you know what? I haven't owned them all or in this quantity for 10 years. And this is where you and I were arguing in March of 2020. And you were saying energy's uninvestable. I'm like, I think that's really you were offering, I was unintelligent off, I was, to You say. were arguing I was offering well-thought-out intellectual argument. <laughs> Fair enough. But Joe brings up a point, too. We got to go. Why so. is the share price higher than the actual price of, of oil? Because nobody was accounting for it, right? And so there's things move. The, the companies don't move with the share prices. All right. Up next, Mike Santoli has his midday word. All right, Mike Santoli, our senior markets commentator, has his midday word now. What's, uh, what's your takeaway, do you think, for this week? You know, it's a market that trades the way you would expect it to when you simply can't eliminate either side of the big macro debate. Um, so you could stare at the, the Treasury yield curve and say, wow, that is screaming at us that a recession is out ahead of us somewhere. Why would I want to add to more risk? Then you think about the lags that are involved. Sometimes it goes negative more, a year or more before recession hits. And by the way, stocks tend to be uh, up in the 12 months after that. Uh, and then you have this notion out there that, you know, Fed speak should, in theory, be able to talk the market back. So far, it hasn't done that. And then you have the, the retail sales numbers, which, if nothing else, didn't consistently paint a picture of a failing consumer, at least at this moment. So to me, it makes sense that we're, we've kind of held steady, we're holding on to most of the gains, hold from the prior, uh, you know, built up in the prior few weeks. Uh, you wouldn't say that it's proven much on the upside just because it has remained in the context of just, you know, this wide swinging range. So uh, I, I don't know that we can have strong conclusions except to say you can't really eliminate either of those kind of positive or negative tails that have uh, been visible all year. All right. Good stuff. I'll see you in a few hours. That's Mike Santoli yeah. at the Stock Exchange. We'll do final trades here next. All right. We're going to do overtime three hours from now on this Friday. Ed Yardeni, Bryn Talkington will be with us today. Their outlook for the next six weeks. Plus, Casey and Alex, Newton and Kantrowitz, Twitter's travails. Still in the news, seemingly every minute. We'll talk about that, too. We look forward to seeing all of you then. Let's do final trades. Jenny Harrington, you're first. I don't want to be a bull. I don't want to be a bear. I just want to make money. Devon Energy, seven times earnings, almost an 8% dividend yield. Okay, good stuff. Jason Snipe. I like ServiceNow here that continue to expand and, and make businesses more efficient. I like it here, even though it's expensive stuff. Note yesterday, right? I forgot what firm it was, said ServiceNow over Salesforce. So interesting pick there. Steve Weitz. Two trades. I'm trading out your promo picture, which obviously was taken 30 years ago for a current one. <laughs> yeah. Number one. And number two, XBI. You've never had two years in a row since the indices, indices came out where it's been down two years in a row. This will be it. So you got to own it for next year. They, they put your picture on there, but the vampires don't show up. <laughs> Go Good one. Top financial holding in Joe T. It's WR Berkeley, ticker symbol WRB, financial property insurance. Okay. Uh, I'll see all of you uh, in overtime. We'll see how we end this Friday because what is now 
has a tendency not necessarily to be later. So we'll see how we finish. We'll talk about it with our special guest today. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.